0: My name is Chief, and I'm an
1: alcoholic.
0: And I'm very grateful to be here. You'd have ridden on as many planes as I did yesterday and got hung up in Chicago, and you'd be grateful to be here
1: too. I
0: got in at midnight last night, and some strange dude met me and uh, looked all over the place and tells me about the cattle and the horses and everything. And finally, I said, please tell me about the road, <laughs> you know, because he wasn't watching.
1: <laughs>
0: it says here to uh,
1: talk slow. Uh, I don't have a difficult time with that because
0: I am a motivational speaker and uh, I did have a tough time talking slow, but it does remind me of a story about a uh, church that was having a money-raising project, and a minister decided to sell Bibles. And uh, we got the congregation together and sent them out. And One lady came in and she sold six Bibles, another sold eight, another sold ten. And finally, a guy comes along and he sold 143 Bibles man oh man he called the whole whole congregation in the preacher did and and he said tell us how you sold out of those bibles and the guy said well it was like this I would walk up to
1: the door and I would bring the door bell
0: when they would come to the door i would say i am selling bibles would you like to buy one or would you sooner
1: that i read it to you (laughs) I'm not
0: selling Bibles, I'm going to talk a little faster than that. <laughs> I've been watching the committee since I've been here, which I usually do, and and I noticed that you get along pretty good, and that's very, very important, because somebody talked about unity, and it's very important in our fellowship. And uh, I know you probably had some fights putting a big deal like this on, but you probably had them behind closed doors, because you seem to be smiling at each other and shaking hands. And, Maybe hating each other, but not showing
1: and, uh <laughs> that that's
0: good. And that, too, reminds me of a story. About a fellow that had had a bad day on the golf course. He was sitting in the clubhouse, and he was just feeling real bad. And he said, oh, God. The voice came down and said, yeah, what's trump he looked up and he said, "That yes, you, God? God said, Yeah, that's me. What seems this rubble? And he said, I just can't putt. And he said, Go out tomorrow when you're out. Keep your head down. and Swing the old putter like the panel of little clock and probably everything be all right. So the golfer thought while he had him on the line, he better say a few more words to him. He said, Tell me, God, do they have a golf course up in heaven? God said, Just a second, I'll check. Then he went away and he come back and he said, I have some good news and I have some bad he said, first of all, for the good news, they have the most beautiful golf course that I've ever seen. And the golfer says, well, what can be the bad news? He said, your tee-off time
1: is 10 after 8 more morning. <laughs> so
0: I think it pays to be on good terms with people. Because we never know when our tee-off time is going to be. Talking about golfers, I was over in Amarillo a few years ago at a convention. Mind you, was in Amarillo, Texas, and so it was a big convention. Am I talking too fast? I mean,
1: you catch that.
0: It's in Amarillo, Texas, and, and it a big convention. I'm sorry. You don't get it, but... Uh... And there was a young fellow like Don <laughs> who was going to chair the, the meeting, the banquet that night. And he had never, ever shared a meeting before, and he was very, very nervous. And he was up at six o'clock in the morning, and he was making his notes, and his beautiful wife got up, went to the bathroom, and she came back, and she sat down on the bed, and she said this, you know, at six in the morning, He said, honey, if something was to happen to me, would you get married again?" How do you answer that? You know, the, the guy was nervous and still making his notes. He said, Well, I guess we would because after all, I am a young man. He said, Right fast, he said, Would you move her into this house, into our house? He said, Well, I guess I'll somewhere. Michael come in the house, nice house. He said, What about the bedroom? He said, Well, you know it's a good bedroom, and so Michael stay there, got to sleep somewhere." He said, What about my children? And he, he, he said, What well, are we don't. You know, he gets a little upset and he said, Well, if you'll will it to somebody else, she might as well wear it. She said, What about my car? And he said, oh, I want a small car and there's a gas run car and got to drive a car, she might as well drive yours. He said, What about my golf stuff? No, 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 no. It's not your golf stuff. he said. You would marry her, move her into my house, let her sleep in my bed, let her wear my jewelry, let her drive my car. What's wrong with my
1: golf stuff? He said, She's half handed
0: So So, ladies, be careful what you ask this next in the morning. I'd like to bring you a greeting from French Cash in Canada, if you don't know where that is, drive to Denver, hang a right, and go 1,200 miles, and you run right in. I was in New York one time, and the guy said, where is this front office in Chesney, Kansas? I told him that. he drive to Denver, hang a right, drive 1,200 miles, run right into me. And he was standing there with a sunbook, and I said, you don't even know where Denver is, do you? (laughs) He's been a New Yorker. He says he didn't. But uh, uh, we have a little roundup up there in uh, the last complete weekend in May it's so small it's just a little bit bigger than this one and uh, we have enough people come now we don't want any more people but seeing you people have been so kind to us to me since i've been here if any of you want to come just drive to Denver, hang a right drive 1200 miles and you'll be at the round the last week weekend we love to see you all there, and we, we can look after I'm not going to tell you tonight a whole lot about my drinking. I'm just going to tell you that I did drink. And I drank fast. I started early and finished early. And uh, I was a trick drinker. I went, I didn't drink. I inhaled. And uh, I did a lot of strange things in beer parlors to get attention. I got a lot of free beer. And, uh, but there's something in this book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It describes me just exactly the way I was even before I drank. It's in the doctor's opinion, and it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effects produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth from the fall. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And then it says they are restless, irritable and discontent. Now, I know none of you identify with that. But when I was 16 years old, i had never, ever had a drink in my knowledge. I became restless, irritable, and discontent. I didn't like the this in my home. I didn't like the diss in my school. I didn't like the diss in my church. And so I ran away from this. And to show you how smart I was in those days, I ran into the army to get away from this really wasn't one of my smarter moves and that night i got dressed up in that big uniform with the rest of the men went down to the beer pot and had my first drink of beef and it was the most beautiful thing that ever happened to me up until that time all of a sudden i was anything i wanted to be i was a great conversational Somebody said something I didn't like, and all of a sudden I had muscles. I told them what they could do. Then we went dancing, and oh my God, you should see, have seen. I was Canada's own a little For the benefit of you young ones, she was a great dancer. <laughs> then I took a girl home, and I was Clark Gable and Charles Boy and all the great lovers of those days, all combined into one. But the next morning when I woke up in that armory, I was that scared little boy that had come to join the army the day before. But every night I could be what I wanted to be when I we went to the rear party. And that was fantastic. I just thought that was the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me. And I did really well in the army. I became an instructor. I just came out of high school and uh, got along really well. But I got kicked out when I was 17. And I went back home and I worked in an aircraft factory and I got a real good job in that aircraft factory and then I got too much responsibility. And once again, I became restless, irritable, and discontented. And I ran away once again. And I ran back into the Army. Told them I'd never been in before and this time I was a genius. Got recommended for my commission loved to stand here and tell you that I was an officer in the army. But I got kicked out when I was 18. And I went back to Prince Office, got a job in a newspaper in the advertising department, and just loved it. See him, could be out in the street, meeting the boys in the service, or home and leave. <clears throat> the boss didn't know where I was. And I just loved it, but then I got quite a lot of responsibility in that job. And once again I became restless, irritable, and discontented. And I know that when I mention that, that a lot of people know what I'm talking about. And I ran once again. And I ran into the Navy. And I told them I'd never been in before, and this time I got recommended for my commission, and I went away to Officer Strange. And I'd love to stand here and tell you that I was an officer in Italian Navy. But I got kicked out of Officer Trench. It seems that an officer didn't appreciate me telling him what he could do with his ship. <laughs> and I've been to the East Coast and West Coast and I look out there and I see those
1: big ships floating by.
0: And really it's a physical impossibility to do with that ship what I told him to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't get kicked out of the Navy, I just got kicked out of Officer Trench. And I became a gunner on a merchant ship. And I sailed all over the world, and I drank all over the world. And I sailed with many of your people in the South Pacific. Met a lot of your people in New Zealand, Australia. And you people still owe me a great debt that you never ever did give me. I was in Melbourne, Australia. Our ship was in there, and we had unloaded our ship. And one of your ships had been torpedoed going into New Guinea, and they pulled it back, salvaged it, brought it into Melbourne. And the government ordered us to take your tank up to New Guinea from your salvage ship. And we went into New Guinea, and those... And you were in the South Pacific, and all those Japanese people were very narrow about people like us coming in. there, And they shot at us and bombed us and everything, but we delivered your tank. And we came out, and we were heading back for Melbourne, Australia. And all of a sudden our own planes came out to meet us and escort us back and we thought it was the Japanese plane coming back. And the captain ordered us to start firing. And so we were shooting at our own planes and suddenly the captain realized that they were our own planes. And he got real panicky. I
1: don't know why. We weren't hitting them.
0: but. but you have to visualize he's standing up here just like I am tonight, and I'm down there in charge of a big forward gun. And suddenly he wants us to stop firing, so he screamed down, "Cease fire!" <laughs> so I fired. kept the war going for another three or four days. I'd have got a couple of our tips I'd have been a Japanese date <laughs> but, but you've never, ever even said a thank you note for that. And they say, resentment's a bad thing, but I, I want to get over it eventually. While I was in the Navy, I got married to a beautiful little girl. Still married to her. I know that's not popular today, but I'm still married to that little gal. And uh, I'd love to stand here and tell you that I was a good husband and a good father, but I was an alcoholic husband, alcoholic father, and didn't know. I just thought that everybody drank like me, and everybody that I come with drank like me, so I didn't know anything. After the war, I went home and started getting jobs, started losing jobs, getting fired, and always getting other jobs, and then I became a fighter. In the last two years that I drank, I had 17 fights and 17 knockouts, and I lost them all. <laughs> and I wasn't a fighter in any rings or anything. I was a fighter in bars. a bad place to fight, especially if you can't fight. And I was also a gambler. I learned to gamble when I was in a service, and I learned to keep gamble. And, uh, I tell those two stories because that's what brought me to alcoholic Thomas. One night I was at a stag, a hockey stag, where our hockey club was trying to raise some funds. And I was there. I was always on committee. And, uh, I got, I was looking after the bar. I volunteered for that. And, uh, then I got into the poker thing. And I did an unforgivable thing. I got caught cheating. It's okay to cheat, but don't get caught. Especially by the guy that caught me. He weighed 275 pounds. He was an ex-command in the Cajun army. And he and I had a fight. Or I should say he had a fight. He hit me and I hit the cement floor. And I got up and he hit me and I hit the cement floor. But we did that a whole bunch of times.
1: <laughs>
0: and finally I stayed down. I couldn't get up. I made 10 sudden. And they took me to hospital. And I was in hospital for five days. And uh, in that hospital, a little doctor told me, and I'll be ever grateful for this, because he said, see, I've done everything I can do for you. The rest's up to you. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I was in a service with you, and I believe that you're alcoholic family. Things haven't changed. You got home, I think you'll work. And so the rest up to you. And I said, well, what'll I do? And he said, I think you should join Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 27 years old. But I didn't have a whole lot of options. There wasn't a whole lot of people came to see me. As a matter of fact, nobody could come to see me back Not even my family. And so he left and left me thinking about that. That night he sent two guys, two members of Alcoholics Anonymous, uninvited business. And they talked loud. And I was, I would try to change the subject because I didn't want anybody to know that I was alcoholic or that I had a drinking problem. I, I'd come in there all beat up and drunk, but that uh, didn't matter. I didn't want anybody to know And, uh, they didn't tell me that I had to quit drinking. They just shared their experience with me, how they had suffered. And I knew each one of them. One was the sloppiest drunk in all of Canada. And this night he was dressed up, and he had a shiny face, and shiny eyes, and beautiful brown suit on, silk shirt, shoes were shiny, everything was shiny. And he didn't have to talk because I knew something had happened to Phil. The other fellow's name was Earl, and he'd been in the service with me, and he got in some trouble over in western Canada, hit a taxi driver on the head, and And he got sent to our penitentiary for five years for robbery with violence. And he found Alcoholics Anonymous in our penitentiary. And I knew that something had happened to Earl, because he loved to sing. And they told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. This was on a Friday night. And they told me that they were going to have a meeting the next morning just for me. And I was getting out of the hospital and that they were going to have an emergency, and at least they built my ego up a bit. I thought, golly, that sounds pretty good, they're just going to have a meeting for me. And I promised them that I would be there. Now I know why I became an alcoholic. I became an alcoholic because I'm a Protestant. Don't laugh, you Catholics. I grew up hating Catholics. Tell I me, mean, I still don't think too much. Because I grew up in a Catholic community. And there were very, very, very few Protestants lived there. And they treated me bad. They called the bingos and laughed and thought I couldn't understand them. And here I am in a Catholic hospital. With a bad check. For my room. This was before Medicare and Jackson. And that little nun, she couldn't find any place to deposit my check. And she became very narrow about it. And she said that I had to pay the check before she got afforded. She let me out of it Because, probably because I was fraud. And uh, on a Saturday morning, I phoned the only person in the world that my credit was any good with. And that was my bootleg. And he came and bailed me out of the house. Probably had he known what I was going to do, he would have left me. Because I've never had to give him any business. there were 15 people. Every member of that group came. In those days, if they got a live one, they all came. They needed members. And I knew every one of them. I come from a town of about 36,000. At that time, it was probably about 20,000. I just hadn't seen them for a while. I guess I wasn't going to the same place as they were going. And they were all real nice they talked, and I liked them, and they, I liked what they talked about, because they accepted me. They didn't say, "Keith, you look all beat up. They didn't say you've got blood on your coat, your shirt. they didn't anybody. They said, "Keith, this is a great deal, this alcoholic And they told me about alcoholic cannabis. And Elmer was there. And I used to drink with Elmer. And Elmer looked good. And I just thought, my God, something great has happened now. And they told me that night that there was a meeting and they would like me and I to come to the meeting. And then they offered to take me home. And I said, no, 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 I can go home by myself. You see, I had been away a few other times for three or four days. And when I got home, that little Scotch lady, she was very, very, very angry. And if I took somebody home with me, she'd run them off. And I didn't want her to run my new friends off. So I said I could go home by myself. But they insisted on driving me home. Fortunately for me, there'd been some ladies up to see her because they knew what I was trying to do. There was no Al-Anon at that time in our city. And I can remember opening that door and you know thinking the worst and she came up and she kissed me and she said i think everything is going to be okay honey huh? boy if nothing else i stayed over that day he had changed already you know and that night we went to that meeting and it's a saturday night and I'll never forget the meeting. They had a, they had a show so Wives were all there at that time in our town. They weren't in the 80s. And I'll yet. yet. And uh, we had their soap. And I can remember them playing Pin the Tail on the dunk. And they were all old people. They were 40 and 50 years old. And this really wasn't my idea of a Saturday night. And then I looked around and everybody was having a good time except me. Even my wife was having a good time. Playing pain the tail in the dark. And you see, I really didn't want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous because I was too young. I was something like the free alcoholic robber. I don't know whether you have alcoholic rabbits or not down here. Back home we have them. I don't mean ordinary Saturday night drunk rabbits. I mean real genuine alcoholic rabbits. They sit out by the fence with their ears drooping down. And there were three of them. And they were called foot, 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 and foot, foot, foot. And footfoot used upon him, foot, 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 and he said, let's pick a old foot, we'll go down to the bar. So foot 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 and 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 they go down to the bar. And one night footfoot didn't talk to foot foot foot, foot foot, foot foot. He said, Where's foot? And footfoot said, foot foot And he said, only hears it's a man, so we went outside. So foot 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 and foot they went outside, they found poor old foot. And foot was dead. So foot foot said to foot foot what do you think you should do with foot? Footfoot foot said foot foot, he says, I think we should they funeral home. And after the funeral, put foot said to foot, foot twenty said, Well, you think old foot died from? Me. And foot, foot said to foot, foot twenty said, Well, I think he was alcoholic. And put foot said to foot, foot twenty said, We think we're alcoholic. Foot, foot said to foot, twenty said, Well, we drink them quite a bit. So foot, foot said to foot, foot twenty said, You think we should join Alcoholics Anonymous? And foot, foot said to foot, put, put, put said, might as well. He said, We got one foot in the grave anyway. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> And I was something like the three alcoholic rabbits, I thought that's what you had to have before you came to Alcoholics Anonymous, one for the grade. But that night, right after they social, they had a meeting. And I can remember a guy standing up and saying, he'd been sober for a year. I sat back and looked at him and thought, liar. <laughs> I knew this bird, and I knew that he didn't stay sober for a year. He was a traveling salesman. I had him figured out. He went out, drank all week, and come back in and told these donkeys
1: that he was sober for all week.
0: And then after the meeting, they took me, and took up the old timers that were sober. About 18 months. They took me into another room, and they had a little chapter. And they said, see, you probably heard tonight that there's no much in alcoholic khali in those days,
1: they used to say,
0: but they said, tomorrow morning, there's a meeting here at eight o'clock, and you must be here. <laughs> they used to contradict themselves away by 10, too. And I went, and I've been going ever since. That was January the 16th, 1952.
1: <laughs> and,
0: Because of you beautiful people, because of a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, because of a loving God as I
1: understand it. I have never had to have a drink, And today I'm truly grateful. And
0: I had a good time in Alcoholics Anonymous, right from the start. I stayed sober just by Pat's on the bathroom. I was the youngest guy in the group. I was the youngest guy in the whole province of Saskatchewan. And they used to pat me on the back and say, you're doing a great job, kid. Oh, man. I love that. That's what I've been looking for all of my life, for people to recognize me. And then a horrible thing happened in our group. Some younger members came in. And he walked right by me and talked to the older members, and the older members walked by me and talked to the younger members. And suddenly, I became a middle member. And I don't care whether you're an Al-Anon, Al-Anon, Alcoholics Anonymous, or whatever it is. One day you're going to become a middle member, and it's a bad thing. You stand out in the middle, poor. Nobody talks to you walk back and forth. And it's just like been a hole in a donut. You're nothing. And I felt like going out and practicing again and coming back in to get the treatment. But thank God I didn't have to do that. Because we had a guy in our group by the name of Ernie. We have discussion meetings where I come from, and we asked Ernie if he would chair the meeting for the next three months, and Ernie said he would if we would do one thing, and we said, what's that? And he said, I want everybody in this group to make a commitment to me that they won't miss a meeting, and that we will do the steps in sequence. And we thought we would, you know, zoom our old Ernie along. So we said we'd see that. And that is the experience that I want to share with you tonight. The experience I've had since coming to Alcoholics Mountain. We went to our first meeting, and Ernie told us to bring our big book. And then he told us to go home and to read the first 57 pages of the big book. And that doesn't sound like a big chore, but if you think that maybe you're going to get a test on it, it's a big chore. Now, that first meeting I was at, I had chosen myself a sponsor. He was sober for 10 days, and his name was Elmer, and I've had the same sponsor for 44 years. I don't know anybody else in the whole wide world about our astronomy who has had the same sponsor. And Elmer and I would phone each other and we would say, what do you think Ernie's going to ask us? You know, read, to read the first 57 pages is no big deal. But we thought Ernie was going to give us a test. And we phoned everybody, and we checked with everybody, and everybody was doing what Ernie asked them to do, and we all thought the same thing. What is Ernie going to ask us? And we went back the next week. Ernie didn't ask us anything. The only thing he asked us is we'd read the first fifth-step pages. And I wish I could have done a test on them, then, because I was in high gear. And then Ernie took us through the first step. Now, he said, we're not going to study this book. He said, we're going to do it. Now, there's a difference. I know some people have big book studies, step studies, everything. But old Ernie, I don't know even know where he got the idea from. He said, it's a do it, not study. And we went on that first step where it says we've met powerless over alcohol and our lives become unmanageable. I didn't even know there was a second part to that first step. I knew I would follow the silver alcohol, but I didn't know anything about this unmanageability of my life. And so Ernie told us about how we could have an unmanageable life. And I had an unmanageable life as far as money. Was now, I know that you people down in Kentucky won't even know what I'm talking about. But I owed money. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous owing $6,200. Some of you people probably got that in your back pocket. Not a lot of money down here, but a lot of money back in town. If you put it into inflationary terms, it's about, that was 1952, it's probably about, what, 35,000 maybe? And I didn't owe it for anything, I just owed it. You know. I came here by way of a poker game. And I owed it to some strange people. And they phoned me sometimes in the middle of the night. And I had a good job. I had a real good job. I was looking out for the fur department of five stores. And I was doing really well. I had a car, a company car, fence account. An and everything was good with me, except these $6,200. Just couldn't seem to get ahead. <laughs> These guys used to phone, and finally my boss got sick and tired of him getting phone calls and me getting phone calls, so he took me to the bank, and he endorsed my notes for $6,200, made me make out the list who I owed the money to, and I can never figure out why they did it this way, but he and the bank manager made the checks, had me sign them, and they mailed them. (laughs) I don't know why they did that. And they made Babe and I sign it. Paper that we would never ever charge him. Never again. Three years later, he bailed me out, or bailed us out, for $7,500. So you see, I had an unmanageable life as far as money is And then I found out that financial problems got nothing to do with money. It's got a lot to do with big shot-ism. Has a lot to do with pride. Has a lot to do with ego now i know you don't even know what i'm talking about because you've never had this problem but maybe someday some canadian may come through here and he may have some financial problems and you say well we heard a guy talk about that
1: and
0: to show you that i've changed just a little bit a lot of years ago i owed a manufacturer ten thousand dollars Not a lot of money in my business because I'm in the fur coat business, but it's a lot of money in the middle of July when it's about 96 bucks. And this guy was writing me letters, and he was phoning me, and he was saying some bad things. And finally, I wrote him a letter. And I told him I love this merchandise, I'd like to keep and have fall dating. And then I threw a little philosophy at him. I said, if I had 10 miles to walk down a railroad track, it would seem like a long way. But if I took it a telephone call at a time, it would seem even longer. Then I signed it, sincerely yours, chief Lee lead portal, manager of chief portal, Persian fashion. P.S. I'm enclosing a certified check for $100, Send it away. About five days later, I got a letter back, that's when the Post Office was operating properly, and. Nice letter. He said that, congratulates me on my letter-writing ability. Suggested that I get out of the fur business and go write letters to somebody. Signed it, Jerry Shuli, Mo Amsel, from Amsel, Amsel, Montreal, P.S. Would you mind sending me another telephone call? I don't know how many telephone calls today, but I could. And I learned a whole lot about that. You see, I was the kind of a guy that I thought if I owed you $400, that I had to pay the $400. I had too much pride to go in and say, I can only pay 100 this week for fifty. And I learned a whole deal. I had other problems as far as the unmanageability of my life, but that was the one that was getting me in the most trouble with a lot of people. And I learned through that meeting that night that about the unmanageability of my life. Next week we went back, and Ernie said we're going to do step two, which is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I had never been in a mental hospital, and I thought that's what it meant—destroyed insanity. I thought they must have thought I was insane. So I said, "Well, I've never been in a mental hospital. How can I come back from somewhere I haven't been?" He said, see, that's not what it mean. We mean you're thinking. You are a negative thinker. And I was the kind of a guy, and I know you don't do this down here, but back home, a lot of people do this. They sit around, around a coffee table or something, trying to help somebody that's not there. You know, and they say things like, I heard, did you hear, oh, isn't it awful. And that's what I could do. I could do this all day long. Easy to do. that. And then they told me, they said, "See, you are a negative thing. And I was something like the negative barber. Guy slid into the barber chair one day, and he said, like a haircut lasted three weeks. The barber said, why three weeks? He said, I'm going on vacation. The barber said, where are you going? We said, first of all, I'm going to London, England. The barber said, you're not going to London, England. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I you know he said, I've never been there, but I heard. It's a lousy place to go. Too many people, too many cars. The guy said, look, I don't care if I don't like it there. I'm going on over to Paris. The barber says, you're not going to Paris. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I now." He said, I've never been there either, but I heard that they really pleased the tourists." I said, look, I don't care if I don't like it, there. I'm going to Rome. The barber said, not going to Rome. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there in front He said, a lot of Catholics. Guy said, I don't care. I'm a Catholic. Yeah, but he said, I heard different kind of a Catholic. Three weeks later, the guy comes back, slides into the barber, The said, how was your trip? He said, it was good. He said, it was. He said, it was. He said, you didn't go to London. He said, I did. He said, you did. He did. He said, I did. He said, I'd love to stay there long. We want to get on to Paris. He says, "You didn't go to Paris. He said, I did. He said, you didn't. He said, I did. He said, I'd love to stay there long. We want to get on to Rome. And he says, you did go to Rome. He says, I did. He said, you didn't. He says, I did. And he says, you'll never believe what happened. He said, I got a nod in for the Pope. And he said, you didn't. He said, I did. He said, you didn't. And he said, you'll never believe what happened. He says, I knelt down, bent down to kiss the Pope's ring. And you'll never believe what the Pope said. And the barber "What?" And he says, where the heck did you get that lousy haircut? (laughs) So I was something like the negative barber. You know, I didn't know, but I heard. And so Ernie said, look, at see, you have an unmanageable life. Step two, you've found a manager. Take it as simple as that. And I wasn't one for taking things simple, but I found out that that made made sense. So I went home after the second meeting, and I found a man. Step three, we went back the next week, and step three, Ernie said we had to make a decision. Turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood it. And a lot of people think that, you know, third step is finding God. All they ask us to do is to make a decision. Now, I don't know about you people, but I still have a difficult time making decisions. Because, you see, I'm always afraid of making the wrong decisions. And so I procrastinate, and I don't make a decision. But I knew I had to make a decision on this deal would Big burned. So I promised him, and I promised Elmer, my sponsor, who I didn't know was having just a difficult time as I was, that he'd been sober ten days longer and was my sponsor, and I thought he was just running through this thing. And so making a decision, you know, I, I just have tough time because still have. Heard a story about an old culture. I don't know whether you people down there know what poachers are. They fish out of season and they do hunts and they do strange things like that. We've a lot of them gathering. Yeah. And this whole culture had been doing this, fishing out of season for many, many years. And the, the new game warden comes down, dressed up in old clothes and went down and made friends with his old poacher. And, and the old poacher, two o'clock in the afternoon, he said, Well, I'm going fishing. Didn't know he stopped the game warden. The game warden asked him to come along. So they get out in the middle of the stream and the old poacher stopped the boat, reached over and opened it Reached Reaches over, got two more sticks of dynamite, lit them, handed them over to the game warden. The game warden sitting there with two lit sticks of him, and the old poacher says, look at buddy, do you want to talk or do you want to say?
1: <laughs>
0: he made a decision, I'll tell you. And that's all they asked me to do, was make a decision, to turn my will and my life over to the care of God I understood it. And I went home that night, and I got down on my knees, down the basement, I didn't want babe to see me. And, and I, I said, God, I've done a bad job managing my life. How about you give me a hand? I'm going to let you manage. It's as simple as that. See, I had to keep things simple. If I start to complicate things, I'm in trouble. I have a friend of mine back home that has a ranch. And another man says, How did you get the name of your ranch? And he says, Well, I wanted to call it the bar Q. My wife wanted to call it Susie Q. My son wanted to call it the bar Susie Q. And my daughter wanted to call it Susie Bar Q. So we call it the Bar 2, sushi two, Bar Bar And the guy says, that's a great name, but where are the cattle? And he says, none of them ever survived the
2: branding.
1: <laughs> and
0: that'll happen to me, and it'll happen to you, you know, if we complicate things. You know, our co-founder said, let's keep things simple. And that's what we have to do. Just keep it simple. And so that's what I did. Just kept it simple. I let you keep the whole program simple. I wrote a book, but most people who've been sober more, more than 40 years now are finding the writing book. Now, this one's not conference approved yet, but I'm working. And it's just a little book. First page says, daily spiritual guide. First page says, get up and pray. Second page says, get dressed. Third page says, don't drink. Next page says, go to the meeting. Next page says, get a job. Next page says, help someone else. And the last page says, pray and go to bed. Now, that's how simple I have to keep out how
1: just as simple as that. And it worked.
0: <laughs> and the next week, Ernie came by and he had pencils and paper for each one of them. And we said, what's this? And he said, well, I heard some people say they have an excuse that they can't find a pencil and a paper. And he said, I want to eliminate that excuse. And he took this big book and told us on page fifty five of this book how to take an inventory. Now it shouldn't be a problem, should it? To take our inventory. We are masters at taking other people's inventory. By the hundreds we take people's inventory. Why should it be so tough to take one inventory, our own? But it seems it's tough. I heard a story about a dear old lady, a society lady she went to the doctor, and she said, I've got a problem. The doctor said, what's the problem? Well, she said, it's really not a problem. Well, he said, what is it? And he said, she said, well, I, got, have, I have gas in my stomach. She said, but no problem. She said, no noise and no odor. Said, so he wrote a prescription for her to come back next week. She said, now i really got a problem. She said, bad odor, but still no noise. So he wrote her another prescription and he said, now that we've done something about your sinuses, we'll see if we can do something about your ears. So I know that many people, when they go to take their four steps, and nothing wrong with them, no problem, you know? We're like the society ladies. So we went home and we took our four steps, and we phoned each other. Elmer Elmer's day phoned me and said, how are you doing? They're really good, I'm working on it." And we all did our four steps, that one week. And now people may say, well. You know i don't I don't think that would be the right way to do it. who cares? just do it, you know, so we did it. I was so proud of mine I asked old Ern if he wanted to read it <laughs> Ern said no that that is uh, you know that's that personal thing, but then he said now we're we're going to send you off to do a uh Step five. And you see, down here I hear a lot of people say they take their step five with their sponsors. I wouldn't take a step five with old Almer. He's a blabberman. And he's only been sober forty four years, he might get drunk. But in this big book now, I hope you don't think this is some propaganda, I'm bringing it down from Canada. I bought this book in the United States. And here is what it says on page 74. doesn't mention anything but sponsors. It says, We think well before we choose the person or persons with whom to take this intimate and confidential step. Those of us belonging to a religious denomination which requires confession, must, and of course, we want to go to the property of foreign authority whose duty is received. I imagine
1: that's the Catholic. Anyway.
0: So we have no religious connection, we may still well do to talk with someone ordained by an established religion. We often find such a person quick to see and understand our property. So that's what we do back in Canada we take it with somebody like that that understands well you see I know what Elmer would have said if I start telling him my four steps he'd have said well I did that you. oh well don't worry about that Elmer's a very compassionate man sometimes and he, he wouldn't have taught me how to forgive myself like the guy I went to a little minister Protestant, mind you and uh, he uh, he shared some stuff with me he was sort of a orangutan too and he and I became real good friends. And then he, he knew what we were trying to do because we have fifth step classes back home in my town for people remember men of the clock, ladies the And we told them what what we're trying to do. So we've got lots of people to take the fifth step. We don't have to take over the time. Now I'm not condemning anybody who is a I'm just saying that I read it in this book that I bought in the United States, and it doesn't say anything. taken taking a sponsor? Just thought I'd throw that in. But then I went about step six and seven, where it says that we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character, and we humbly ask them. To remove our shortcomings. I've sat in meetings where they have talked about defects of character and shortcomings for two hours. What's the difference? What's the difference? And they have a great discussion. And they leave the meeting and they don't know the difference and they still got them all. I think Bill just didn't want to repeat himself when he wrote those things. But you see, we haven't really done anything when we get to step five. We just, you know, admitted we're powerless over alcohol, we have an unmanageable life. Step two, we found a manager, who I prefer to call God. We made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of this manager. We took a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And another thing about step four is that it says admitted to God, to ourselves, and to a human being. And a lot of people say, I went to another human being. Ernie says, admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. So I went in the bathroom, and I get down on my knees, admitted it to God, got up to look in the mirror, and admitted it to myself. And you know what? I changed stories from there to there. I'm capable of doing that. I know none of you people are, but I am capable of doing that. But in this step six, it says be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects it has. Now do we want to do something about ourselves? And Ernie really said, you know, do we want to be the way we were? now do we know what's wrong with us? Or do we want to do something? And you know, a lot of people are afraid of becoming too good too fast. Don't worry about that. That is not a problem in our fellowship. I am privileged to do this almost every Saturday night, and I have never yet met a saint. Not even from Al-Anon did I meet a saint. So you see, that's not a problem. We're just afraid of becoming too good too fast. I heard a story once about a mother that caught her little son Johnny frame. Now that's not a bad deal because you know they read about it in every best selling magazine, and they wouldn't read best selling magazines if we didn't buy them. But she said, Johnny, if you don't stop doing that, you're gonna go blind. And Johnny says, Well, can I keep it up till I need practice? One Sunday morning Lou, I told this story over in camel's pretty slumber, close to where Lou lived. And when I was finished talking, this dear old lady, she looked like she was the head of the temperance committee, she just come right towards me. And I thought, Oh my god, I guess I shouldn't have told that story. I could tell she was mad. And she said, Young man, this is quite a few years ago. And <laughs> she said, Young man, I like the way you took us through those steps this morning. But I really loved that story about little John. But she said, when I looked around, you notice how many people are wearing
1: glasses. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: so in in step six and seven, I didn't stop gambling because I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I just thought I'd be a better gambler. I'll let you in a little secret. You can lose money sober. Those horses don't run any differently. Sober drunk. And those cards don't fall any differently because you're sober, and a member of Alphabell anonymous. The blackjack table doesn't do any difference. The slot machine, nothing, you can just lose money sober. And I was still playing poker, and I was starting to lie about how much money I was making. Because <laughs> babe always wanted half. And I used to have to borrow money to give her half of four in one. And I was getting in trouble, once again, with financial problems because of poker. And I used step six and seven to get rid of poker. Or gambling, And it worked. I don't have to gamble anymore because it's chapter 6 and And I used it on a whole bunch of things because it said be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of God and to humbly ask him to remove our... And it talked about humility. And I knew that I w- if I wanted to be humble, I would have to really get down on my knees because my grandmother had taught me that. And I was having a difficult time getting down on my knees. And I was over in New York and I heard a guy talk by the name of Ty Walker. Ty told a story about how he came out of prison and how he was having a difficult time to stay sober. And he told the story about how he went home from work one night and he was wearing high-top boots and he picked his high-top boots underneath the bed. The next morning he got up, got down on his knees to get his high-top boots. And he thought, by golly, I'm going to say a few words while I'm down here. Every night he used to put his boots under the bed so that the next morning he could get out in his days and pray. I don't know whether it works with high-job boots or it works with ordinary shoes because I tried. I don't have to do that anymore. I can pray whenever I want. And I'm probably the praying this man in alcoholic mind. And then when it talks about humility, I heard our beauty. We were talking about our beauty tonight at dinner. She's been in Al Anon, I think, longer than Lois, I don't know. But she's been there a long time. She's in Texas. And our beauty said something one time that made a lot of sense to me. I don't even know whether it's true. He said humility is the ability to stand and the willingness to kneel. Stand up for what you believe in. Get down on your knees and thank God for what he's grateful for. That's good enough for me. So now I can kneel and I can stand and I can do what I can. Talk about what I believe in. Get down on my knees and thank God what I'm free for every part. Except one to do so within to them or others. And every week Ernie read something to it. And it is so beautiful. He read the 12th promise. And he said, this is what you're entitled to. And he said, don't chip yourself. Get what, what you're entitled to. And he would read the 12th or this twelve. But I just wanted to show you I could read it without glasses. And uh, <laughs> so. and Ernie used to say, this is what you're entitled to. Don't chip yourself. Do you realize that there are members of Alcoholics Anonymous that don't know what they're entitled to because nobody's ever told them? Isn't that a sad thing? They really don't know what those 12 promises are. But thank God old Ernie read them to us every week and said, This is what you're entitled to. And when we finished step nine, he said, This is what's really what you're entitled to. He says, Now you know what you're entitled to. And I'll be ever grateful for Ernie. The next week we went on to step ten, and Ernie said, Some people call these maintenance steps, 10, 11, and 12. But Ernie said, I'm going to call them growth steps. Because, you see, he said, I don't want to stay the same. If I maintain it, I'm just the same. He said, I want to grow. Wesley Parish from Palm Beach, Florida, who was a great pal of mine, used to say, you got to grow or you got to go. And I believe that to be true. And I just think we're so fortunate that we get the opportunity to grow. And I think that I am so fortunate because Ernie did that to us. Well, we got a step-do-it program and not a step-study program. And it makes so much difference. And step 10 means so much to me. Well, you see, when I was 10 years sober, I forgot who I was, what I was, and where I'd come from. I was a big wheel. I'd been a delegate in AA, went to the General Service Conference, Went all over the place, speaking in Alcoholics Anonymous. Had that big job. By this time, I'm managing the largest lady wear store in Saskatchewan. I'm looking after five stores, first for five stores, and I'm big. I was working for the wealthiest man in our city. And I thought he should be the second wealthiest man.
1: <laughs>
0: and I got some of those material things. But in my great struggle to get them, I lost some spiritual things. And I started going astern in alcoholic nonsense. Never missed a meeting. Always went to meetings. Always went to the penitentiary meeting. I go to a meeting with an attitude something like this. You lucky people, here I am. Somebody wants to ask me a few questions, I'll give you a few minutes of my time. I would drive up to the penitentiary in my big automobile, thinking, wow, well, these guys are really lucky. <laughs> the great one comes up here every week, you know. Isn't that sick? And one day my boss called me in the office, and it seemed that the store wasn't big enough for the two of us. And it seemed that he owned it. <laughs> and it seemed that he wanted to stay there.
1: <laughs>
0: and so he fired the great one. And I walked out of his store with an attitude something like this. It will not last long now. The great one's gone. They're still okay. They're still millionaires. They're doing all right. I had a little cousin of mine. Lou knew her. She's now gone to that great roundup. Fern came from Vancouver, British Columbia, to my town, came home where she used to live. And I was going to a roundup, not nearly as big as this, but to a place about a couple hundred miles away, with a dear old fellow by the name of Dave Murray. Dave's now also gone to that great roundup, and we went down to say goodbye to Fern. And I had some new threads on, and I stood up in front of Fern with my big egotistical way, and I said, well, kid, how do I look? And Fern said these simple words. I'm going to share them with you. She said, you look real good on the outside, Steve. How are you really on the inside? And I went to this roundup with old Dave, and Dave didn't talk to me. I was driving the car. And I guess he thought maybe something was happening to me. I went into Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I spent a couple of days in a hotel room with this book and talking to God. There was a dear old fellow by the name of Ross Marr, and when I was taking the train back home, and went out at midnight, and we went to a meeting, and then he came down to the train with me. And I said, Ross, what is wrong? What am I doing wrong? He said, see, it's not what you're doing wrong. something you're not doing at all. He said, you stopped doing what you used to do. He said, you've stopped reading in the morning. You've stopped doing the good one-to-one. He said, I don't know. Nobody told me this, but I imagine it's what's wrong. And he said, you're suffering from untreated alcoholism. And I said, does that mean I have to go to a treatment center? He said, no, no, no. That means that you just have to go back and start doing what you used to do. And I went back to Prince and I got back into alcoholics. I'd never been away. But I got back in. Because you can be out of alcoholics, anonymous, and in it. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And I went back with a proper motive. I started doing things with the right motive. And things really turned out great for me. And there's not a night that goes by that I don't read step 10 of this big book. And I got a little prayer that I try to say every night. And that little prayer is, Please God, treat me tomorrow like I've treated everybody today.
1: Be careful when you say it.
0: That's a good one. But that's the way that I try to live today. All because of what happened when I was over ten years. Step 11, it says, talk through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Each and every morning, no matter where I am, I take the book, book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I read the 11 steps, page 86, 87, and 88. Seems repetitious, but it's all right. I read the prayer on page 63, and I read the prayer on page 76. I read the last part of the vision for you. And it says we trudge the road to happy destiny. Somebody explained to me that trudge is going ahead, it's not going to turn. That's good enough for me. I'll read acceptance not only on page four hundred forty nine, but I'll read the complete deal right to four hundred fifty one because it tells me how to have a proper relationship. I read the promise. I may read some other things. I may read Amit Fox. I may read Vincent Field. Sometimes I read the Bible. I know it's not conscience approved, but I'll take a chance. And I want to share with you something that happened to me when I was doing my reading one morning. We have two daughters, Faith and I. And our oldest daughter, she's been sober 25 years. And her and I are great buddies. And we gave Faith probably everything that any daughter could ever have. And you'll never believe what she did. She married a Catholic. Worst kind, an Italian one. And one time I was coming from a deal, something like this, probably, and I, I stopped to visit them. They lived in Eastern Canada, outside of Toronto. And I went to visit her, and they had a little girl. Her name was Anna Louisa. That's really not an Anglo-Saxon name. And Anna Louisa, she was all dressed up, packed, and ready to come home with Grandpa. And I took her home. She was three years old. And the next morning, I'm doing my reading, and she knocked on the door, and Babe said, you can't go in there, honey. Gramps doing his reading. And she said, I have something to tell her. So I said, let her come in, and she came in. I took her up on my knee and told her what I was doing. And I said, what did you want to tell me? She said, I wanted to tell you that I love you. I said, I want you to know that I love you, too. That may not mean a thing to anybody in this audience. But what it meant to this old hard rock that couldn't give love and couldn't accept love. Here's this little Catholic girl telling me she loves me. And I'm telling her I love her back. (laughs) She is 25 years old today. And we never meet each other or we never say goodbye to each other unless we tell each other we love each other. Isn't that fantastic?
1: Just because of our khalistan She just
0: graduated at Christmas from a job. She graduated from the university. She got a job immediately. And she's doing a, got a real good job. Go to work. She has a sister. Her sister's name is Tella Maria. <laughs> no idea where to get those names. She graduated Christmas time with in education. She got a job immediately. Getting married on the fifteenth of June, and I'm gonna be the MC of the wedding. And it's gonna be a great deal. And she thinks that grandpa is major smart. Why should I spoil her day? You know? <laughs> and she loves her grandpa and I love her. They have a our youngest daughter. Has a son, his name is Jake. He's a Protestant. And he's been to probably more international conferences than many of you people here. He's been to three international conferences. Been to many, many, many places that I've gone to speak to. He comes with me. Not anymore because he's in university. Not because he's a Protestant, but just because he and I host. Like going to Catholic. Go and, and you know what happened to him? He was going to the school system, the Protestant school system, and he came one day and he said to me, called me, Steve, he said, Steve, I'm going to go to St. Mary's School, the Catholic Church. And I said, Why? <laughs> he said, Because they have a better spiritual program. Isn't that fantastic that I was able to accept that?
1: <laughs> I,
0: I know now why they have those signs up keeping open minds and living that lives. You need them because they Catholics they just never stop. Donna got divorced from her Protestant husband and she got married to a Catholic. Now they're Italian and they have a grandson they, they have a son 12 years old. His name is uh Giovanni Anthony. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> I mean, that's unreal, isn't that it? make... Give a kid that name. But he is my buddy. And I have to go to his hockey games, to his ball games, to his soccer games, to his basketball games. I have to go to... Everything. And he calls me And he just loves alcoholic and And I remember one day, he was... I was telling the people I had to dinner with tonight. he just loves Elmer, my sponsor. And he was asking me what a sponsor does. And he says, Uh nah, well, who do you sponsor? And I said, well, you know I sponsored Jimmy. And so, one day the other phone rang at the house, and, and he was there with Babe, and and uh, he says, aren't you going to answer me? he said, well, no, it's always just me. And he said, he's not home. And she said he said it could be Jimmy and he's maybe in trouble. <laughs> or so, he's getting honest. And when when little Gio was small, he used to get a magazine and he would go through it and he'd look at cigarettes and he'd say, Bapa Cis and geo, no way. He'd look at whiskey, he called it whiskey, and he says, Bapa she and Gio, no way. Then he went to a wedding down east of Catholic uh Italian wedding, and uh, when he come home, Tony and Donna said, tell Papa Steve what you drank down there, and he changed the subject. And he said, go ahead, he said, I just had a little bit of wine. And that's when he was four years old. He's now 12, and he hasn't had a drink since, And not a slip since, so he has eight years of uninterrupted surprise. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> and you know... The reason that I do my reading is that you never know who's out there to get you. Sometimes before you get out of your house, someone will get you. That little wife that I'm married to, she I call her Mrs. I want money. And I'll be just going out the door, and she will patter, 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 I thought she's she has to have a hair done because she comes under her car and she wants the money. I have done my reading and I'm ready for her. I kiss her goodbye, tell her that I love her, don't give her any money, and I'm gone. And you see, you learn how to hang them all. So I just don't take a chance of not doing my reading because she's going to get some of my money. I haven't got much, She's got more than I have, but she wants mine. So this program works in every department of my life. And then in step 12, where it says, having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. We tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our faith. You know, having had a spiritual awakening is a personality thing. If you had seen me yesterday morning very early, and Lou very early, getting up the way in northern Canada, 1,200 miles straight north of Denver, and going to the bathroom. And if I said, holy moly, I have to go to Lexington, Kentucky, I would have been played out before I got out of the bathroom. Instead of that, I said, boy, I'm off to Lexington, I haven't cave Get on those airplanes and get stuck in Chicago. Doesn't matter. I've done my reading. I don't get mad at the airplane. Do a fix in the airplane. I'd sooner get fix it on the ground and fix it up there. You know? People complaining and yelling at the people that own the airline. I don't have to do that because I do my reading in the morning. And there's a big, big difference, I'll tell you, in my life. And then it says we try to carry the message to the alcoholic are still suffering. You know that some people go looking for alcoholics and still suffering. I'm going to tell you something. There's more than 1,400 of us here tonight. And I guarantee that there's a lot of people suffering. They've still got a football in their stomach. And you can see it in their face that they're not feeling good. And the first night I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, little Bobby Motherwell said to me, we want you and we need you and we love you. I didn't think anybody wanted me, didn't think anybody needed me, and David informed me that nobody loved me. So, just look around tonight. You don't have to go looking for somebody in the bar. They're right here. We're not having problems getting people into Alcoholics Anonymous anymore. We're having problems keeping them. 40%, I hope. I hate to tell you this, 40% of you are here tonight, won't be here next year. I'm not saying you're going to be out drinking, I'm just going to say you're not going to be here. And that's a sad thing, but it just happens that. I have probably made a thousand twelve step calls. Every one of them has been a success. Oh, some of
1: them
0: are out drinking, some of them are dead, some of them are in prison, some of them are in mental hospitals, some of them are in treatment centers, some have short terms of sobriety, some have long term sobriety. But the reason I say that everyone has been a success is that OC is still sober. And that's what all it asked me to do, was to try to carry the message to the alcoholics still suffer. And so I just keep trying to do it. And then it says practice these principles in all our affairs. What principles are they talking about? I think in step one, we're talking about honesty. Step two, hope. Step three, faith. Step four, courage. Step five, integrity. Step six, willingness. Step seven, humility. Step eight, brotherly love. Step nine, justice. Step ten, perseverance. Step eleven, spirituality. And step twelve, service to our fellow man. And then it says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. I think they're talking about the
1: previous 11 steps.
0: Isn't that fantastic? was a guy totally unscarred by education. <laughs> and I figured that out. Isn't that great? That's how simple the program is. So, I can understand the steps
1: because I did the step.
0: I can share them with other people because I did the step. And it's difficult to tell somebody about the steps if you haven't done the steps. So I pray that everybody will do the steps in seek. My old sponsor says that everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous and al anon should have the opportunity at least once in their life of doing the steps in seeking. And I don't think that's wrong with Elmer saying that, because it says, they read it tonight. It said, "Here are the steps we took, <laughs> which are suggested as a program for Congress." Chucky used to say, "I would suggest that we took them." <laughs> Simple as that, folks. I've had a great time. I've had a wonderful time here. Probably have a great time tomorrow going home on those airplanes. I want to thank the committee for giving me this very pleasurable privilege of being with you. I want to thank you, the audience, because you were just a great audience. Last but not least, I want to thank God for giving me one more beautiful day to allow me to do something for Alcoholics Now. And I'm going to close like this. Every one of you look real good on the outside tonight. How are you, really,
1: on the inside? Thank you, God bless you. <laughs> I'm